are not from that community, if you're going in there and you think that you know how to solve a problem, you are almost certainly incorrect. The, the solutions come from the community itself and the strengths within the community. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. Today, I'm keeping it in the family again and talking to Olivia Arnold. She's my younger cousin, but she's wise beyond her years and someone I look up to and learn so much from. Olivia is a recent graduate from Northeastern University, who's currently teaching in Boston, Massachusetts. She was the editor-in-chief of Northeastern's campus newspaper, The Huntington News, and she reported for the Boston Globe. She also spent time learning and volunteering in Zambia, Greece, and India during her undergraduate career. I've always been blown away not only by Olivia's hard work, independence, and adventurous spirit, but also by how thoughtfully she reflects upon her experiences. That's why I wanted to record a conversation with her for the podcast. We're going to be covering a lot of ground, talking about journalism and reporting, voluntourism and even wrestling with expectations around what we should be doing and what the most prestigious types of jobs are. Ultimately, I think Olivia has a lot to share about how a winding path that wanders all around, maybe even around the globe, can lead us to exactly where we're supposed to be. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's good to have you. You you studied um, journalism and political science at Northeastern, right? Mm-hmm. So what was your journey to deciding on those majors? Did you know for a long time that you wanted to study journalism or what did that look like for you? For a long time, I had wanted to be a teacher. Um, so that was kind of what I wanted to do. I would say like middle school up until early high school. I had kind of a negative experience in high school and that I had some teachers who I just like really didn't get along with who like weren't good role models in my life. And that kind of made me not wanting to go into teaching. There was also kind of this pressure that I felt just maybe from other teachers or kind of just like societally of like you're in honors and AP classes. You should be doing, you should go to law school. Like Mm -hmm. you should do this, you should do that. Um, so I don't, I feel like was one day, like junior year of high school, I was just like Googling random things. I was like, I like writing. I like this. I like that. And I just, I just came across journalism. I'm not even sure how I got into this path, (laughs) but yeah. So I applied, I ended up working on, um, the school newspaper my senior year of high school and I had always like loved writing, Um, But I definitely wouldn't have considered myself like a journalist. A lot of people that I went to journalism school were like really gung-ho in their high school papers and like editor-in-chief had really like nationally competitive high school newspapers. My high school paper was not like that at all. I was really into writing and history and politics in high school. So I want to write about politics, sure. Uh, And I ended up working out. I majored in journalism. And by the time I graduated, I had two minors in political science and international affairs. And I'm curious, kind of, I'm kind of hopping back now, but when you said, not expecting you to name names at all, <laughs> but when you said <laughs> that you had some kind of negative experiences with teachers, I'm just curious as to what that looked like, because, you know, you were a very good student, you got good grades, you're a really mm-hmm. nice person. Like, what did those negative experiences look like for you? My freshman year of high school, I just had like 
a really horrible biology teacher and uh, she she pretty much like straight up bullied me wow. to the point of like calling me names in front of the class, like making me go up in front of the board to answer problems like because she knew I didn't know them to embarrass me, stuff like that. Um, and then on the flip side of that, I had a really positive experience with my 10th grade history teacher who I ended up having again um, for We the People later on in a government class. And he and coincidentally, I'm going to be teaching now U.S. History 1, which is what I had him for. Oh, cool. Uh, Very full circle. Yeah, it's kind of come full circle for me. But like, he didn't know it. But coming off that freshman year, I had pretty low self-esteem at that point from like a variety of just being a teenage girl and having to deal with all of the various pressures of life. But also just having that one like intensely negative experience. School was kind of the thing that I had going for me. Like I didn't really have like a sport. I wasn't a theater person didn't have like an instrument. Like school was like my thing. That was like my personality. So to have that like negative experience with that teacher, it definitely really affected me, uh, my self-esteem negatively in a way that like I have it didn't really understand till many years later. Yeah. And I think one of the main things that made me not want to be a teacher. Um, but then I did have this, this teacher who had taught me U.S. history in 10th grade coming right off of that and someone who like really I think was one of my first mentors uh, in my life and I've been so lucky since then to have so many mentors all throughout college so many people who have championed me but I feel like he was he was the really first like non-family member person to really believe in me and to put in the extra time um, into being like should be like you should take this class you should read this just like putting in all those extra not on the clock hours mm. into me because he cared about me as a person and my development and that's something that I definitely like really want to take into the classroom this year. So did you declare your your journalism major pretty early once you got to school? Yeah, I was a journalism major coming in. My minors came after, but I was journalism from the start. Mm. And then did you start working on the paper right away? I wrote for the school paper pretty much right away, but kind of infrequently. There were a few different like publications on campus that I was working with. The newspaper was kind of not at the forefront of my college career at first. I didn't start working there uh, as on a position, a leadership position, until actually after I co-opted at the Boston Globe. I started working there December 2015. It was my the second semester of my sophomore year. And I worked there full-time for six months on the night Metro desk. I was a breaking news reporter from 5.30 p.m. to 1.30 in the morning, Monday through Friday, full-time. And then I worked there part-time for a year after that, once a week. Um, and that was really my first, like, real job. Um, and it was kind of weird because it was 5.30 p.m. to 1.30 a.m., so it wasn't the normal 9-to-5 job yeah. that most had as their first full-time job and it was a super exciting super crazy lifestyle um, but I had a great time working at the globe and I was like waking up at noon every day like going to the gym making my breakfast and reading like I had these really relaxing mornings before work which were lovely mm. but my life was felt very balanced at that time but yeah like the breaking news uh is it's it's a crazy life for sure um and because I was the nighttime, I covered a lot of crime, 
which I really had never done before. I did a lot of, like I said, kind of here and there stuff of like writing about political news. I would write stuff for my classes, but I, I was never really, I, I never really trained to report on crime per se. Mm. It was my first kind of exposure to it. Um, and it, it definitely does affect you in a way uh, that, you know, these stories that you're writing, maybe you're covering them for like an hour, maybe, maybe 20 minutes, but like, this is somebody's life that's being changed forever. Sometimes like sometimes you're talking to people on the worst days of their lives. Like they just lost a loved one. Um, and you're like, you know, one of the first people there. And that's a, that's a really hard thing to do. Uh, I, I commend the night journalists who cover crime and tragedy for a long career. I did it for like full-time six months a year part-time and it was it was definitely a hard time Um, but it does at the same time feel like important work and you do have those moments that you kind of realize like what you're doing is important not you know sometimes you might feel like I don't know like maybe I maybe this is too much like but you know I did I did have an editor who told me at one point um that like sometimes in the grieving process usually it's not right away but sometimes it's like people do want to talk about their loved ones and I did definitely get that experience a few times of like people really wanting to say something and make sure that like what their voice was in the paper that Mm -hmm. article about their loved one Um, so for sure definitely had that experience too but it's it's tough I think one of the toughest assignments I ever did was I was sent to cover a wake for a two or three year old boy who had died Mm. and that was really really tough um just like having his mother there and kind of like all his family members and like having that energy um just in in that in that space and like being present in that um yeah yeah covering that stuff what was the effect on your on your mind or on your body like on your on your mood or thoughts or even just physically and there are definitely definitely times where you get really, really, really down about it, really, really dark about it, especially the ones that like really touch you. Um, and some some things like I'm saying, like sometimes I'm just writing off a press release and I'm just talking to police officers. So and sometimes I'm actually talking to a person's family. Like, you know, there are different things that affect you on different levels. But and also kind of in a positive way, it did make me a lot more like grateful for things I started writing thank you cards a lot and like calling my family a lot more I started getting this feeling that was like no day is guaranteed and like we just have to show our love and our gratefulness as many opportunities as you can you know just I I started just being a lot more like outwardly grateful and like loving to my my family and my friends around me because I realized like how many freak things just happen Mm mm-hmm that makes total sense. I was just in a small car accident recently. Nothing terrible. Um, but it's that is the type of thing where, you know, for me, like I got rear-ended totally out of nowhere. Like there was nothing I could have done. No way I could have controlled it or avoided it. And when that type of thing happens, it does make you realize like, oh, yeah, I really can't control everything. And <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen on any given day. And one side of that is that it can make you really anxious and mm-hmm. scared but it can also increase your yeah your perspective and your gratitude 
Mm-hmm. And it has made me more anxious about some things for sure. I mean, I will like freak out if people don't wear their seatbelts because oh, yeah. I've covered so many stories where people have died from that. I'm nervous about biking in the city because I've covered biking stories. Mm-hmm. Like there are definitely things like that. Uh, but I, in general, and I'm a little bit more removed from it now, but in general, try not to be afraid to live my life. But there are definitely small ways that it has affected me for sure. Yeah. I can't imagine having the like confidence and maturity <laughs> it, when I was in college to like cover such serious stuff and be just talking to so many people with, you know, like you have some authority in that mm-hmm. role. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just curious what your experience was of being a young woman in college, also working as a reporter on these serious, um, these serious subjects. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So when I started working at the Globe, I was 19 years old, <laughs> which is just so young. Like, yeah. So young. I'm just like this little blonde girl. Um, and sometimes I would just like roll up to crime scenes in my minivan because the Globe had cars that we would rent out. <laughs> and one of them was a minivan, which I would always get. So I'm like rolling up at 11 p.m. in my minivan oh my um, <laughs> to the crime scene. Um, yeah, I was. <laughs> I was very aware of um, how I looked. And I think a lot of times that led to me trying to look more professional. Like a lot of kind of the uh, journalism is kind of a casual profession. A lot of people will wear more casual dress now. Um, But I found myself like still kind of wearing like business casual because Mm -hmm. I like wanted to be taken seriously. And I didn't want to be showing up in like jeans and whatever my shirt to a crime scene or to the office or anything. Um, I was really lucky that I had um, a really strong role model as my editor. And he's one of my mentors too, um, who just like always treated me with the utmost respect and seriousness. And that was so like, I'm so grateful to have um, him in that role. There were definitely like a lot of other small I would say microaggressions that I encountered um, from like people like when you're covering stories, just people like not taking you seriously um, for like various things, like people trying to like ask me out on dates or like comment on how I look or how my hair looks. And I'm just like, okay, like that's mm. fun. Like, you know, it's, it's just, it just kind of happens. Not, not particular to the globe or whatever, even journalism industry, just, life (laughs) that's just how life kind of is um but I definitely would encounter some stuff like that where you're just like you know they would describe like I would just hear like male co-ops talked about in different ways than the female co-ops um and it's just like you just in a way that's like the male co-ops are like smart and brilliant and the female co-ops are like nice (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's just like you know you're out there covering the same crimes and it's good to be nice but you also definitely want to be seen for your skill for your talent and I did have a really awesome editor who definitely saw me as that and then at some point you became the editor-in-chief of your school's newspaper right I did yes people were asking me like what's your next move and I was like that's a great question I'm not (laughs) sure this was kind of my main thing like when I came to Northeastern for the journalism school, I was like, I want to co-op at the Globe. That was like my dream. And then I kind of had accomplished my dream. And I was like, okay, 
So now I didn't what? realize something happened after that. I thought like this would just fall into place now. <laughs> um, so I ran for the editor-in-chief of the paper unopposed and I was elected. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did you hold that position? I served for only one semester, but it felt like much longer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What was that experience like? I really like leading and I like like mentorship roles. So I really loved um, like mentoring young editors because a lot of the team was really young. The paper tends to be like underclassmen just because of the nature of co-op and people like moving on to work for other publications. Mm. Um, so I really loved like meeting the, the, there are mostly freshmen on my team, um, and like just kind of giving them advice about life and class and talking to them. Like, I really loved that part of it. And I really loved, I mean, I was really proud of the stories that we covered. I was really proud of my team and like seeing them grow and getting to see all their writing skills and all the things they all brought to the paper. It was wonderful. As for me as a person, I think it was personally one of my worst semesters just like mental health wise I was Mm. so I was so stressed like the whole time and so anxious I just I had a full class load I was still working part-time at the globe and I was editor-in-chief of the paper and I just like just lived with like constant breaking news um and like the paper itself was just tough to run it was seriously like tens of thousands of dollars in debt like we're working off of volunteer students we're having to figure out things like things on the business side just never interested me and that's what you really have to do as editor-in-chief is like work with the debt and fundraising and I really just wanted to work with the people and the stories but like there was so much that went into it with advertising and finances and that stuff was just very soul-crushing for me (laughs) and um yeah it was definitely a very stressful semester. I made out that semester alive, but I, uh, I was, most people served for a year and I was just like, I, the last couple of people before me had served for one semester and I was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to India. So this is it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can imagine working in, in such a deadline driven environment with the sense of urgency all the time while you all while you have a full plate of schoolwork and a part-time job and you know like a personal life <laughs> um, and I mean, we, we only printed once a week like some are dailies but with the online stuff we were trying to be like more breaking news with stuff that was happening um and for those actual print nights like I like my first print night I came home at like six in the morning from the Huntington News that's the name of the paper office um and like that was the latest ever, but like usually like three or four in the morning I was coming home and then I had to go to class the next morning and I was eating like Cheetos and Pop-Tarts for dinner and not exercising. And like, yeah, it's kind of a recipe for disaster when you like add all those things together, which is just like stress, not eating well, not sleeping well. Um, but yeah. Yeah. You're bringing me back to, uh, I was, I worked on my high school newspaper just for my senior year and I was, uh, the centerfold, uh, co co editor of centerfold with another student and yeah, late night. And we, I mean, I don't remember, I guess we put out a paper every week. I don't even <laughs> really remember. Um, <laughs> but I do remember the, and, and I, I mean, I honestly had a pretty fun, section me and my co-editor got along really well we had a lot of fun with it but yeah there'd be Mm -hmm. like it those late nights and everything I I remember looking at the the I think there might have been like two editors in chief 
who did mm-hmm. it jointly. But um, they're the, just the stress on their faces, you know, <laughs> like I just didn't have time. Yeah. I was working at the Globe Friday nights at that time. So it's just like by the time I get to Saturday, I'm just like dead. Saturday was like my lay in bed day. And then Sunday was like back at it oh. <laughs> kind of thing. So it was like. Yeah. And even Saturday was work days sometimes too, depending on classes and whatnot. Because like with the week with the newspaper and everything, sometimes you're playing catch up with your classes. That definitely was the like, I'm not the kind of person who is like do the bare minimum. But that semester for my classes, I was definitely like the do the bare minimum type of deal. Like well, I'm not you, like had to, right? Things. Yeah, I, but there's no way I could do it. It was too much. Like, I was like, if this is graded, I'm doing it. If it's not, then figure it out yeah I feel like I'm having a stress response just hearing about this like I can feel in my chest like yeah but on the plus side that next semester is when I went to India and that's when I like regained all my balance and my love of life which was wonderful and I I really want to talk about that I just want to backtrack a little bit to when you went to Greece um because that was a little more journalism that was journalism journalism centric um Mm -hmm. So you went to Greece for a month the summer after you were editor in chief, right? Yeah. Um, and what was that? What was that trip? What was the purpose of that trip? And what was your experience of it? It was a journalism study abroad, which was great for me. It was led by two professors who I was closest with in the journalism department. It was the title of it was called. Uh, covering conflicts, community, and crisis. It was three weeks in Thessaloniki and two weeks in Athens in Greece. And the point of it was kind of to gain experience as an international press corps, writing for an online magazine for Northeastern, covering different issues like the economy, like the refugee crisis, uh, and just different things going on in Greece culturally, socially. And by the end of the program, the five-week program, we had to have three different stories produced. So I ended up doing two written ones and one video story. And we also were taking a class while we were there at the American College of Thessaloniki, which was a Greek culture class where we learned a little bit of language and also Greek culture. And you wrote a really interesting um, blog post, which I don't think is online anymore because I tried to find it. I, I actually- couldn't. I looked it up before then. I made it private for my teacher life. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Trying to delete my digital footprint, but I actually just reread it in preparation for this. Oh, cool. So you, you're comfortable talking about that? Yeah. I know I know this is a little bit controversial, I guess, but um, <laughs> the post was about some coverage of the refugee crisis mm-hmm. um, and your experience visiting a refugee camp, right? Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so Greece has been struggling with um, influx of refugees for years now. The crisis really peaked in 2015, so it's not technically a crisis anymore, but there are still thousands and thousands of people coming to Greek islands every day. Um, and that's from from Syria, but also other countries in the Middle East and other countries in Northern Africa, different conflict-ridden countries. So what we were doing is there were a couple different stories before the first story about the refugee crisis, there um, was an opportunity for three people from our group, which is about 20 people to go to the Greek Island of Hios and report from a refugee camp there. One of the most overcrowded in all of Greece. 
And so you had to apply for that. And I did, and I was selected to go on that. Um, we had one person doing video, one person as the, the print journalist. Um, and then we had the person who was like on camera. So the three of us. And so that was an overnight trip. It was super quick, like less than 24 hours, maybe, maybe exactly, maybe a little bit more. It felt super, super quick. Um, we pretty much hit the ground running and we were kind of shepherded around by uh, our connection there, which was a, a volunteer who has been there for years now doing work, who's originally from Massachusetts um, and talked to a lot of different people there. I think I, the, the, the kind of issue or struggles that I had with it was, I mean, I was just really in shock after I went there. I had read a lot about the crisis, uh, refugee crisis, and I had read a lot about this specific camp and the situation on Hios and what it was like. But going there and seeing it was so much different. Um, And just seeing people and families living in tents on a beach, tents that were like soaked through with rain and just really having nothing Um, And then also the fact that, I mean, these were all, all such brilliant, um, lively people and that, you know, just, just all these wonderful human beings and all these people who had a variety of different professions and lives in their respective countries who were forced to leave and now were being forced because of bureaucratic reasons to sleep uh, outside in a tent where there's rain and snakes and um, all these various different issues. And I guess um, also just talking to people. Uh, this was kind of the height of a deal that was struck between the European Union and Turkey, which I won't get into too much the p- specifics, but as a result of the deal, it had delayed asylum proceedings. So people who I was speaking to had been stuck on this island for over a year. Oh my um, many of them had been separated from their family members. So they had family members who were had continued on to Europe. Um, and that just kind of made the situation that much more dire because of that new international policy that had been passed. They were now uh, just kind of living their lives in limbo on these camps, just waiting day by day for over a year for their asylum to even be processed and to be heard. Um, and the added, the added of being the added element of being separated from their families just made it that much more desperate. Um, and I, and almost everyone who we spoke to and the article is online somewhere. Um, almost everyone we spoke to had issues of, self-harm, suicidal ideation, really, really, really dark things. Uh, And that was just like, I mean, it just pretty much put me into shock, I think, just talking to these people um, and hearing all these different, all these different tragedies that they are facing. Um, And what I think I kind of walked away from that when I was in shock is I'm like, just like, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing this? Like, what what is my, what is my purpose for doing this? Um, like why am I asking these people to recount their greatest 
sorrows and their their most traumatic experiences. Why why am I making them relive this? Because I'm reporting for this magazine that is online that has a pretty limited reading. Like I'm not the New York Times. I'm not the Guardian. And guess what? The New York Times and the Guardian has reported on this 10,000 times over already. Um, so, you know, I understood that kind of talking to people, there was a bit of an exchange of like, they were telling their stories because they wanted things to change. And they hoped that by people reading their stories that something would change, which of course is something that I hoped for too, but something that I realized that as a student working on this magazine, I, it's not something that I could feasibly promise them uh, or anticipate for them. So that's kind of what I was struggling with ethically after having those interviews. I can totally understand having those ethical questions, um, especially being a student who is, you know, who's not writing for a huge audience. Um, Yeah, and I think going in, I had kind of those good intentions. And I was like, these stories need to be told, like, have this kind of like idealistic thing that's like, this is going to change something. And then, and then I just found myself kind of questioning myself being like, what is this? Is this going to get them what they need? I'm not sure. Is that a conversation that you had with any of your um, peers or professors? Yeah, definitely with some of my peers. Um, and I posted this blog post kind of about that you were referring to. We all had to keep a post, a blog uh, while we were there. And it was like kind of a controversial post on the uh, trip, though I recent I reread it and it's it's really not that controversial, to be honest. But like, but I did think it struck a chord with people in a way because this is what they were doing too. And in a way, it was kind of them like projecting of like, if she's questioning it, then she's questioning me and me doing this um, and like questioning my morals and my ethics. And really, I was never saying like anyone was unethical, but I was just kind of, for me, questioning my ethics beyond behind doing this. And I think that kind of rub people, some people on the trip the wrong way because maybe they were projecting or uh, maybe they were unsure about their own reasons or maybe they were super confident in their reasons and they were annoyed by me questioning it. I don't know. I think we also had just had really vastly different experiences. The two women who I went on the trip with, the two students who I went on the trip, uh, we talked about it a lot and they were really good sources of strength for me in those next couple of days because only we had gone through the same thing together. Other people had gone to other places. They had gone to these like homes where refugee people were being kept, where all their families were together and they were on the mainland Athens and they were, they were being processed for their asylum charges. And like they couldn't maybe understand it because they were like, oh, but we cover the refugee stories and they had us over for tea and it was happy and we sat in the mm-hmm. living room and play with their kids. And it's like, but you know, that's fine. And that's, that's a valid story too. But where we were on the Island, we're talking about one of the most overcrowded camps in the country. We're talking about people who've been there for over a year, who've been separated from their families. It's a lot different than people who have made it to mainland Greece, who are with their young children and their spouses and who have that kind of hope. I think the absence of hope in our story is what really shocked me the most and affected me the most. Yeah. And I think it is really troubling for people to ask questions like that and to have their sense of 
themselves and what they're doing may be disturbed or unsettled. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of us react that way to being made uncomfortable, but I really respect the fact that you had the that you had the critical thinking <laughs> abilities to not only ask those questions of yourself, but then to pose them out loud. It's always scary, I think, to put to question things publicly. Yeah, I was definitely nervous about it. And I definitely did not want it to be seen as like, I'm like questioning our professors on this trip or like questioning this trip or kind of rocking the boat in that way. I didn't want to be seen as like a referendum on this whole experience. It was more just like, this is what happened to me today. And, uh, and I think at times I have been seen as being like too empathetic for the people that I cover. There are kind of different thoughts in journalism that are evolving. Um, And there's kind of the one school thought that's a little bit more old school that is like, these are your stories and you're detached from them and you don't feel them and you can't help them because that's unethical. That's like old school journalism ethics. And there's kind of the newer one that I think anyway, that is more evolving. That's like, actually, like you can and should have empathy for your subjects that you cover. Like it's impossible to segment your personality and your heart and soul into different things. And for me, that kind of that experience where I don't know if anyone actually told me this, but I felt like I was being told that I was like too empathetic for this, like, oh, not everyone can do this kind of work type of thing, which for me, I never thought that to, in order to be a journalist, you can't be empathetic or you you can't wrestle with those questions. But it did reaffirm for me in a way the work that I wanted to do after that in India, where I was like, I don't want to be neutral uh, on this anymore. Like, I I do want to do this work. Like, it, I, it's inc- so incredibly valuable for all the journalists who cover these things from a neutral perspective, especially conflicts and and crime, like I did at the Globe and all these different things. But uh, I just think for me, I cannot separate my empathy from that. It's interesting because I just finished reading this book. It's called Mindsight by Daniel Siegel. And he is a... Um, I can't remember if he's a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but something he talks about is that as a young medical student, he would talk to people about their lives and the way that they felt about things. And Mm -hmm. he would get in trouble. He would keep getting yelled at by his supervisors because they kept saying, like, these are not people. These are, (laughs) you know, for you, these are not people. Mm -hmm. These are symptoms you have to compartmentalize. And he talks a lot about the importance of, yes, you do definitely have to, when you're in a profession like being a doctor or being a journalist, there are times Mm -hmm. when you definitely have to be able to kind of control the valve of Mm -hmm. your empathy. But he also talks about how important it is to, for it to be a valve that you can control and not just shut off. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting, like, I think as you go as you go out into the workforce, um, as you get experience, you do come across no matter what field you're working in, um, people saying this is the way that it's always been done, so this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. And that's just not. It can be frustrating as a young person. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you get into a field and you're kind of like, well, just because it's the way it's always been done, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right, and it doesn't 
mean that it always has to be that has to be this way either Mm -hmm. Um, so I could see in the case of journalism just feeling really similarly like can there be some moderation here (laughs) does it have to be Mm -hmm. completely that way and with journalism, it's just like every single decision you make from every word choice to every headline you use is a reflection of your personal morals. And it's kind of a weird profession in that way because I don't think a lot of things are like that. Like everything I write has my name on it. So I'm sensitive to it if an editor wants to change this or that in a way that I think like changes the meaning or changes Mm -hmm. the tone because it's like at the end of the day, who are they going to blame for this representation? It's going to be the person who has their name on it. And in a way it's like journalism is so deeply personal because in addition to that, like you are forming these connections with people and that's the point, right? Like you're supposed to connect with people and get their stories, but not connect too much. And it's like, how, you know, how do you shut that valve off and on? You definitely can't just collect people nonstop and, you know, have no kind of separation or boundaries between your personal life and your work life. But at the same time, I think it's just as detrimental, if not more, to just totally shut yourself off in the other direction because forming human connection is kind of the basis of the whole job and also just the basis for life. Yeah. And it feels like it could almost feel like trickery to be like, okay, I need to connect with these people enough that I gain their trust, but not enough that I think about their well-being and how this is going to affect them. (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly. And I did. So I and the other reporters who were on this trip, um, we did have all of the people who we spoke to on Facebook. And I have gotten updates from them since then, which has been you know, probably more beneficial for me than for them. But like, we definitely did have that, even though we were there for such a short amount of time, we did have um, some sort of connection in that way. And the one, there were two people who I kind of dealt with the most, who was a mother and an adult son. And her story, the mother story was really the one that kind of like tore me up the most. uh, Because she talked about being separated from her like children, her young children, um, and how like, they were in Germany and she was waiting here and she was like just all these, you know, horrible things that were happening to her in the camp and all the things that happened to her when she was escaping. Um, and I did like, I received a Facebook message from her son, her adult son, uh, kind of, I mean, probably a couple of months ago. And it was a photo of her with all her kids back together. Um, and he kind of just said to me, like, we're all in Germany now. Like we all made it together. Um, and that was just like, so amazing to see for me. Like I probably cried because it's just like it, you know, just to see that that in for now at least had worked out for them was so wonderful to see. And in a lot of cases you don't get that kind of closure on stories when you're working on them. You're just like, I wonder whatever happened to those people that I spent in a really intense amount of time with over a course of time. Um, but it was it was nice to see that story come to completion. Yeah, that's amazing. That's and that's that's nice that you kept that connection and that you were able to to get that update. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned how you were really ready after that trip to do some nonprofit work in Mm -hmm. India, right? And before that, so jumping back a little bit, you had spent a month in Zambia, uh, Mm -hmm. right? And you were working, were you working at a a nonprofit there? Yes. Yeah, I was working at a girls and women's shelter there. I'm sure you could talk a lot about that. But (laughs) um, going as, I'm curious. So how old were you when you went to Zambia? 
I was 18 when I went to Zambia. It was after my freshman year before I started working at the Globe. What were your thoughts on like, okay, I'm an 18-year-old white girl from New Jersey. Yeah. I'm going to Zambia for a month. Yeah. What was, what kind of drew you to that? And what were your thoughts about, about your role there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I was, I mean, I'm only 21 now, almost 22, but I was, I feel like I was such a baby before I went to Zambia. Like I just was so like naive and about everything. Again, it's one of those things. I feel like a lot of my life has been like not very well planned out. I was just like looking at summer study abroad things. And I was like, I knew I wanted to go, I wanted to do nonprofit work and I wanted to go to like a country that I like, don't think I would get to go to like after, after graduation, like just somewhere that I'd never been. Um, and somewhere that like, I didn't think would be just like a vacation spot. And I found this, this, uh, nonprofit study abroad focused thing, similar to the, uh, Greece one that was for journalism, um, same kind of program in Zambia. And I was just like, I want to do that. I, I was just drawn to it and I just applied to it. And that was kind of that, um, I didn't think much about my impact as a white woman in an African country and until I really got there. Uh, and I think, to be honest, the only reason why I could have that debate in Greece about all those ethical questions uh, was because of my time in Zambia. That kind of started it all. I was taking a couple human services courses while I was there, and that kind of really informed my perspective of this kind of idea of voluntourism and this idea of the white savior complex of white middle-class people coming from developed countries, kind of swooping into developing black and brown countries and, you know, being there for a short amount of time doing some sort of service work and then kind of posting all these photos and kind of what is the, what is the effects of that? What kind of perception does that give and what are kind of the ties to modern day colonialism um, with that? And this, this is probably the first time embarrassingly enough that I really started thinking about my race and how it impacts people around me. I was there for only four weeks and you can't possibly know a whole country and a whole culture in four weeks. I had an amazing time in Zambia. Everyone I met there was so wonderful. I worked for an amazing nonprofit, a girls and women's shelter. I helped start a a sanitary pad program there of teaching the residents to make sanitary pads. I was recently told that it's still going, which is so exciting uh, because it's been like three or four years now, but uh, started with this, measly $200 grant from Northeastern that we got. But uh, that was something that didn't come from me. It came from the nonprofit itself. Like we came in and we said, what do you need? What are your needs? And they said, we really struggle to buy enough sanitary pads for each woman every month. There are 40 girls and women here. Uh, that's And it's not, it's not uh, cheap to get reasonable or sorry, to get uh, disposable sanitary pads are expensive. Uh, even even here, they're expensive. Yeah, and especially proportionally, they're expensive. Um, so that was kind of an idea that they came to us with. We used our grant money to work with them on that and to teach it in a way that would be beneficial and culturally relevant. Um, but you know, definitely, what we we're not saying everything that we did was perfect. But I think that's definitely when I 
first became aware of that concept of like, what perception do you want to give off um, when you're going into these countries? Do you want to focus on it from a weakness-based approach where you are showing these photos on Facebook that takes an entire country and even for Africa, an entire continent out of context and out of perspective? It, it doesn't do anyone justice to focus on um on the weaknesses of a country when the country already faces so many stereotypes and the continents faces so many stereotypes, um, you know, choosing, choosing to celebrate its strengths and see a community from its, from its strengths. And, you know, I, I choose not to post photos with anyone who I, who was a resident at the shelter there because, especially children, because for me, I don't think that children can ever give consent to uh, be in photographs online, like children that you're not related to, particularly, you know, when you're going into a country, when you're meeting them for such a short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that these children can give consent for them to be, you know, your profile picture on Facebook. And you were taking classes during while you were there about human services and you were learning about the white savior complex and mm -hmm. and things like that explicitly in your classes and having discussions yeah i'm the classes were a little bit more informal but i would work every day at the shelter um in the mornings and then we would go home for lunch and then in the afternoons we would have lectures um it would either be my professor or it'd be someone from the community so when my professor did she did explicitly talk to us about those things like white saviorism like voluntourism and we've really like as a group just debated ethically like hey we're paying to be here right so whatever we paid two thousand dollars to be there wouldn't that benefit this community more than us working in the community like you know these are these are just things that we kind of talked about and grappled with which was not as present on uh that journalism dialogue that i went on because it was journalism and not human services but i think like it had definitely um, a human services element to it that would have been important just for reflection and debrief so then if it wasn't my professor, we would have someone from the community. So we had like a um, like an HIV activist come in uh, who was working with like HIV in Zambia. We had um, a trans rights activist come in. Um, so just different people who were working in the community on different social issues. I'm curious, from your perspective now, how do you define voluntourism and what are your thoughts on those types of study abroad programs? And maybe what would you say to students who are considering them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, it's tough. I mean, I definitely, I participate in them. I definitely benefited from them. I feel like all those experiences that I've had have changed my life. But uh, it's, it's definitely tough to grapple with sometimes that, you know, again, those ethical questions. Voluntourism, I would say to me, is just when you volunteer as a form of vacation, I think kind of what it has come to mean is like 
a lot of white middle-class college students, particularly uh, going on these trips. And like I said, kind of those images that come to mind are like all those social media posts. Um, And I know like plenty of people who have done that, plenty of people who I consider to be like really good, really smart, really great people who have the right intentions, right? Like they want to go somewhere and they want to help something. Um, They want to help people. And I think that's really important. Like they're not coming from a malicious place. However, and this is something that I'm still like learning on and growing on every day. And I don't have all the answers to it for sure. Um, But it's just that like, when you're going across uh, against a historical perspective that so many African countries have been devastated by colonialism and going along with that, uh, there has been this idea that like there is that white savior that will come and save those countries and save those villages or save those people. And I think that can be extremely detrimental in erasing the local efforts on the ground. Like I said, we had every day those people coming in who are working in Lusaka, which is the capital of Zambia, where we were staying and working. Um, And all these people who every day are committing their lives to fighting for different social issues and social change, uh, and then kind of like presenting yourself as like the person who is helping fix this issue. Um, and, And you can't erase that from, you can't separate that from your whiteness. Uh, and what kind of historical implications that has for the people who live there. So that's that's kind of my thoughts on it, as jumbled as they are. No, it's not jumbled at all. And I, <laughs> I give you a lot of credit because these are difficult questions. And I yeah, really- definitely like especially with uh, coming to be a teacher, uh, it's like I can't afford to be on the sidelines anymore. I'm going to be teaching in Boston in a neighborhood called Hyde Park that is majority black and Latino. And it's just like for me to be like, well, I don't know. It's tough. Like I can't really think about it. It's just it's not I, I've just come to kind of realize like it's not an excuse anymore. And by no means am I like anywhere near being self-actualized in this at all. It is still extremely difficult for me as part of my teacher training. We've been doing diversity workshops, um, which has kind of forced you to think about like your identities, your many different identities, your many different privileges and oppressions and how that affects the people around you and yourself. And it's, it is hard, hard work, hard, hard work, um, for sure. But like, it's, it's kind of just like for me, especially being in the classroom, being in a classroom where I am the minority, but at the same time where I am a part of a race that has historically been the, uh, the one that is in power and the oppressive race like what does that mean for the our kids what does that mean for a system in which like education is so heavily segregated still um so for for me it's like i just i can't i for the sake of my students education it's not something that i can just kind of be like blissfully ignorant about anymore and i think a a lot of it involves listening (laughs) yeah and learning and that's really important for white people because they have not been so good at that uh, and I think also I kind of bypassed one of your past questions, which was like what advice I would give to people who are considering these trips, these service trips. And I think the biggest piece of advice that I could give them is don't come in thinking that you know all the answers. The answers already exist in the community. So whether you're in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world, 
Um, if you are not from that community, if you're going in there and you think that you know how to solve a problem, it, you are almost certainly incorrect because there is <laughs> no way that you know how to solve a problem in a community that you have never lived in. And again, a community that you see only for its weaknesses and you cannot see its strengths for. Uh, the, the, the solutions come from the community itself and the strengths within the community. So spend a lot of time listening and a lot of time learning and observing and and just really learning from the people who've been there and know and no, and it, half the time, if you ask people what are the solutions, they know already how to fix things. It's just a lack of resources, or uh, maybe a lack of money, and or you know, a lot of different things. Yeah, it seems like a lot of it is about humility. Yeah, that seems like an unlearning process of um, oh yeah, <laughs> of being like, oh yeah, I don't have to have the answer to this, and um, it's actually not helpful for me to think or act or pretend like I do um so no I mean that's that's all you you're only 21 so it's wild (laughs) that you have this much wisdom and I really appreciate all of it a lot thank you okay so I think it's time to (laughs) to hop on a plane (laughs) and go to India all the way on the other side of the world. <laughs> so a few years after Zambia and just a few months after your trip to Greece, mm-hmm. um, you went to India and you were you were working for a nonprofit that focused on girls' education, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the nonprofit actually is just, it's a community development nonprofit. Okay. It's called the Institute for Philanthropy and Humanitarian Development. It does girls' education, but also female livelihood and uh, health, women's health. So I was working on the girls' education aspect of it, but they have those three separate programs. And you were living with a host family, and the the woman that you were living with was also the um, was she the CEO of the nonprofit? Yeah, she was the founder and executive director, Madhu Vaishnav. She is the founder of it, and I she also is my host mom. And so you were living with her, her husband, and her two teenage sons, right? Yes. Zambia was four weeks. Greece was a month. This was a full four months. Um, what was the the work that you were doing there? And what was your experience of living with a host family? And where specifically were you, I should say? Because India is a big country. It is. <laughs> uh, I was in Jodhpur, which is the second biggest city in Rajasthan, which is North India. And I was working at the girls education program. So um, basically as nonprofit work often goes like doing anything and everything related to girls education, I kind of, it was awesome because I kind of thought I would just be like the intern, but I came over and found that I had a much bigger leadership role because uh, IPHD, which is the acronym for the nonprofit, is a small grassroots nonprofit that does a lot of incredible community development work on a local level, but they're not a big nonprofit. So they have a handful of full-time members, um, full-time staff members. So I got to do so much with the girls' education. And again, it was it was me coming in and asking, learning, listening. I didn't do not that I didn't do anything, but I did not implement anything for the first month. Uh, 
at least the first four weeks, I was observing, I was learning, I was adjusting to culture shock. Um, I was meeting everyone. And that was really important to me just because everything was so unfamiliar to me. Uh, everything from like the food to the showers to the toilets to the like to the transportation. Um, I mean, obviously there were cars, but I was taking like auto rickshaws. And everything was just super unfamiliar for me. I went to India. I didn't, I didn't know anyone there. I had I had FaceTimed or I had Skyped with Madhu once. And uh, she had basically her passion had driven me to move up my life and move across the world for four months. Um, so I was doing a lot of different work at the girls' education program. We would do – we worked six days a week, three days at – uh, an office in Jodhpur, and then we would commute three days a week about to the village, uh, which was Bikram Core. I was about an hour away. Um, and this is a village in Rajasthan that is similar to some other villages there, has a history of being a patriarchal system, has a high rate of unemployment, um, and just is mostly agriculture-based and has few other opportunities for economic development. Um, so they had been there for a few years in that village doing a lot of different work and I was doing girls education there. So when I was there in the village, um, I had, I had a few different projects that I worked on. I worked on helping to do outreach with the girls who IPHD was sponsoring to go to school, talking to families, um, about what they needed and what kind of barriers are presenting were preventing their daughters from going to school. I led training workshops with the teachers there. IPHD was also um, paying the salaries of uh, two different full-time teachers in the government primary all-girls school. And I led some workshops with them on classroom management, like how to take attendance and um, how to organize the notebooks and things like that. I also helped with supplies distribution for uniforms and backpacks. I led a fundraiser to get desks in the school because the girls were sitting on the floor during class. Um, so we got, we, I led a fundraiser to get desks and benches for the girls. Um, and just like a lot of other different things. Uh, I definitely, one main thing that I learned there is that each element of community development does not exist in isolation. And I came there being like, education is the key. If we educate girls, then everything will be equal. Uh, but I came to learn very quickly that that's great on paper and education is really, really important. But um, you can't get educated if you don't have your health, if you're right. sick with malaria or if you don't have sanitary pads to go to school. Um, and on the flip side of that, if your parents don't have a job, then maybe you as a child need to stay home and uh, work around the house or work on the family farm um, because they need that additional livelihood opportunity. So getting livelihood opportunities for the mothers of these daughters were just as important as enrolling the girls in school. How long had this organization brought um, is specifically students from Northeastern or just American students or like how long had they had a, that sort of program and what what sort of benefit is it to them to bring a student over as a worker? It's been in that village since 2013 and they take in interns from all around the world. So when I first got there, uh, it was it's mostly from American universities. But when I first got there, 
the interns were, um, one person was Canadian, one person was Mexican, and one person was German, and then I was American. So we were all from different countries, which is really cool. Uh, but most of them went to American universities. And um, so they do accept students from all over. And really, like, the interns, uh, it's, it's as much a, a humanitarian training program as it is um, the, a service a delivery kind of organization. So uh, they invest a lot into training people and students around the world to be these community developers, um, to to teach them different things about the culture and also different aspects of community development. Like I would have workshops on um, different aspects of community development and different theories uh, and different approaches. And the benefit that they get is that they get a lot of young people who are willing to put in a lot of hours. Yeah. And like I said, they they really don't have many full-time people. Um, so they have, they have those kind of boots on the ground, those people who are really passionate and really driven to do the work. And I know you had a really positive experience with your host family. And so I'm curious to hear you talk about your experience of living and connecting with your host family. And also you did touch on culture shock. So what mm-hmm. it was like for you to to acquaint yourself with the local culture and make connections with people. Yeah. So my host family, I think, is one of the main reasons why I felt like I had that immersive experience and it really made me realize uh, and, and reinforce for me like how little time I had spent in Zambia and how little time I had spent in Greece because every day and every week I was learning different things about Jodhpur and like I said for I basically spent four weeks observing so you know that was my whole program in other cases and that time was so valuable for me and my host family uh, made that time valuable for me it was so different living with them in their home as opposed to like living with a group of college kids in a dorm or in a hotel. Um, it really allowed me and they welcomed me so wonderfully with uh, explaining to me everything and answering all my questions, no matter how silly about things, um, including me in all their holidays and like all their family outings, which are really special. And it just, it, it really was like, I, I'm a member of this home and like I had chores and I would like wake up and make chai for everyone in the morning and you know I had to eat vegetarian and now I am still pescatarian I eat fish sorry <laughs> sorry host mom but, um, <laughs> but yeah like I, I was a member of the house and you know like when when family was coming over like I was entertaining them too like <laughs> extended family members so it was really awesome to be like a member of that family. And I think it helped a lot with the culture shock. Uh, just because like at first I didn't know them obviously. And it's like, I'm living in their home and that's, that's just tough to like live in someone else's home who you don't know. And you don't know what the expectations are. I remember, I think like I, I was like a weekend and I was like sleeping until I I think I slept till like 8am and my host mom came and like woke me up and I was like, wait, what? Like, what's happening? And I found out that, like, culturally, it was just, like, super rude to sleep in. So eventually, I became, like, a good host daughter. And I was waking up every every morning super early. I would have yoga at, like, 
seven in the morning. So I was up by like six thirty. And like if anyone slept in, I would just be like, Oh my gosh, they're sleeping in so late, wasting this day. Like I got on board with it. But it's definitely hard at first because like you're not sure what's expected of you. You're coming in with in someone else's home is hard enough, but add on to that different cultural differences. You don't know like what's considered rude what's considered polite what's considered clean what's considered dirty like it's just so many of these ideas that we have about uh like what is polite what is obvious is embedded in our cultural norms um so i had to learn all that stuff but thankfully because i had my host family uh, they they explained so much to me and it it definitely helped with the learning curve uh so fast um and it was so awesome like forming those connections with them i really want to go back. I don't know when I'll be able to, but I super want to go back because I feel like I have a family in India. And along with that, forming connections with just people throughout Jodhpur and the village um, was especially hard because I didn't share a language with them mostly. Um, My host family all spoke English and um, the women in the village and the people in the village did not. So I, I also kind of learned how to form connections with people without language, which was a really cool thing. It involves a lot of being a warm presence Mm -hmm. and eye contact and nodding. And, you know, slowly but surely we got there. And and I'm not even sure how, because I do remember at first it being like, I don't know how this is going to work. Like I want to, and I think a lot of times, even as Americans, I think especially we're like just used to everyone speaking English and like we get really thrown off if someone doesn't speak English and we're like, "Ah, how will we ever connect with them? Like this will never happen. We don't have language. But like it actually somehow just ended up working out. And like I was able to make those connections with those people um, without language is really awesome. And I just remember like on my last day, they were throwing me uh, like a party in the community center that IPHD runs in the village. And I kind of like missed part of my own party because one of the women who is a manager at IPHD, but also um, someone who lives in the village herself, she had like invited me to her home. And I was like sitting there with her kids and she was like, you know, giving me like chai and we which is tea. And we were, she was like making me food and like just having that simple kind of act of love and connection where I was like, wow, like four months ago, I wouldn't have been here. But now we're at this place where like being invited into someone's home is such an honor. And it was just, it was like something that I missed a little bit of my own party for because it was just like such an awesome connection to have. Did that family speak any English or no? No, not really. I, so yeah, they, like she definitely did a way better job than I did of speaking Hindi. But um, like she would say, you know, kind of like, some words to me, but yeah, they, they didn't speak English at all. Uh, I, most of the people who I worked with in the village, I spoke through, spoke to through a translator or, um, just kind of in like a broken hand gesture kind of way. But I, I was taking Hindi lessons, but, um, the, some people in the village didn't speak Hindi. They spoke like a local dialect. So that was kind of like an added layer on that. Um, some people could understand Hindi. So it was just, we just had all these languages going on and it, it just somehow worked out. I, there's a perception of India as being very patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your experience of like gender norms or um, expectations in India? Mm-hmm. 
I have so many thoughts on this that I'm trying to organize in real I know. time. It's so it's so complicated <laughs> because it's a big country. There's so many differences depending on what region mm-hmm. you're in. Like yeah, I, I think that's that's the important first part to note, right? So I went to Mumbai at one point, which is like one of the biggest cities in the world. And, you know, it it looked like New York City and I it just was it's a very progressive city. Uh, I was living in Jodhpur and Rajasthan, and it was definitely a conservative city and more conservative than I had anticipated. Um, I like there was definitely like a way to dress and like a way to act. Um, And like men and women socially don't make eye contact with each other when they speak. That's just like a cultural norm. Um, So there were a lot of different things like that. And then there were also things that were less cultural, more like blatantly patriarchal that was like, you know, a big issue that we were trying to combat in the village was child marriage and girls being married off at young ages. And and that was uh, mostly two boys that were also children. Um, and it was mostly like an economical thing. But uh, that was a huge thing. A huge barrier was period stigma and girls being afraid to go to school because of that. There's also like, I think I came in kind of with my American perspective of like arranged marriages are very patriarchal. And I kind of equated arranged marriages to like child marriage. And I, I had this idea of it. Uh, my host parents are actually in arranged marriage and it is super common in where I was in India. Um, and they're a great team and great partners. And so these are kind of like a lot of different a lot of different realities and truths that I was being exposed to. In some ways, I like hesitate to say that uh, like India is any more patriarchal than the US because even like it's a lot of it is perception. Um, I think that a lot of times we do have the media that kind of disproportionately focuses on sex-based violence in India. Um, When I was in India, like, you know, my host mom was saying to me, like, what is this Me Too stuff going on in the U.S.? Like, what's going on with that? And kind of like, when that's the only thing you're hearing about the U.S., you think that, oh, my God, there are just like rapists everywhere. Um, And I think we can kind of have a similar effect with that, with like the way that that this news is covered in India. Uh, On the other hand, I also like do not want to at all diminish the issues that uh, many women in India face because sexual violence is a huge issue as well as um, just different gender inequality issues. Um, I also hesitate to say that because, um, again, it's one of those things where I can't separate my gender from my whiteness. So in some ways I can say, you know, oh, I had a fine time in India. Like I had no problems with my gender, which you know, I'm I'm not saying that I didn't have any problems, but I would not say I had significantly more problems than I do in the U.S. Right. Like, I, I really don't say that. But again, like, I had an immense amount of privilege as a white woman and as a foreigner. Uh, like, people can see it as soon as they look at me and they treated me differently because of it. I would not claim to say that I know the uh, the experience of what it's like to be an Indian woman and that that oppression just gets uh, doubles down more and more as you go to women of lower caste, Muslim women, um, and other religious minorities. Uh, and like, there are still things that are a crime in India and things that are heavily looked upon, like being gay. Um, marital rape is not a crime in India. So these are like, there are just so many things where like the patriarchy is involved in it. Um, 
but I, I'm kind of coming at it at, at many different views of like not wanting to over embellish as a foreigner and also acknowledging that like I had a very different experience there as a white woman. Yeah, it sounds like it's just very nuanced. And by living there and experiencing all of it, you're kind of able to hold all of these different nuances and not just label it as all of India is X. <laughs> mm-hmm as college graduation started to approach and it was time to make some decisions about your first step post school which at the time can all can feel to some people like whatever i do next is forever and this is the biggest decision of my life and that's false but it is it's a significant time of okay this familiar school track is ending now did your experience in india um affect how you thought about that upcoming transition and and the values that you the things that were important to you in considering what you wanted to do next? Yeah. So again, I feel like I've said this a lot, but I kind of was like, India is my goal. And then I got to India and everyone was like, what are you doing next? And I was like, but I'm still here. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, what do you mean? But yeah, like by the time I was getting back, it was December of my senior year. I only had one semester left of my senior year before graduation. So it came at me real fast. And I knew going into India that I kind of wanted to make that switch from journalism to education. I didn't know exactly what that looked like, but I loved the work that I was doing in India and I was really passionate about getting girls in school and about reducing education inequality. And that is what led me down the path to education. I was actually getting recruited for this job when I was in India. So I actually like had a Skype call with a recruiter while I was there. So it was kind of uh, in there in the back of my mind. I just kind of saw that one of the ways to reduce education inequality head on is to have that role in the classroom, which was my original goal way back like two hours ago when we started talking. Full circle. (laughs) Just to be a teacher. So that is what I am doing now. So do you feel like you had to release some shoulds from your mind of I should do this or societal expectations or some definitions of success in order to do something that really is lighting a fire in you right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's hard sometimes to be honest. I what I'm going to make as a teacher is less than my yearly tuition at Northeastern, so you know that's, <laughs> that's tough to justify sometimes. Um, but more than I would have been making as a starting journalist. So at least at least we have that. <laughs> yeah. But money aside, I think I I've really been. I've been privileged and lucky enough to have both the financial resources and the family support to always feel like I had the space to chase my dreams and whatever I was passionate about. And that is an immense privilege that many, many people, most people don't have. Um, So I'm really, really thankful for that. And like, I feel like what I've been saying is just like a lot of my life has just been like, what's next? Okay, I like this. I'll try this. Like, it, it has kind of been like that in a way. Um, and I and I think I did have some of these things that was like, I got good grades and I was editor of the paper. I should go to law school. But like, 
when but I, I don't I, want to <laughs> especially when I was in India I was like I don't want to go to law school like what am I talking about yeah. and you know maybe it won't even be off the table forever but I was just like right. I, I don't want to apply for law school like what like it's just because I had this idea of like if you are a strong student in government and journalism actually is a pretty big law school like major that they let in it's like if you're kind of on that humanities course like you should go into government or you should go to law school or both. And I was just like, I, I just don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, because maybe one day down the line, I mean, you have, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe one day this will lead you to like, oh, you know what? I feel really passionate about X and a law degree would help me to do Y. So mm-hmm. therefore I want to do it, but not just for the sake of it. Um, yeah. And I think it's really interesting how all these little seemingly detours um can eventually seem like they all make sense like you know like northeastern led you to these these global um experiences which led you back to education which is leading you now to your next step which isn't forever but it's your next step for now that's going to lead you wherever you you know (laughs) um whatever is after this so everything that that seems like a detour it's like if you just keep following your curiosity and following what what's really intriguing to you and just what you really desire um to do at that time it'll keep kind of leading you in the right direction yeah that's so beautifully said it really is i feel like my life has a lot of random circles that come through and yeah it's just it's just come from chasing what interests me I admire you so much. You're my younger cousin, but I look up to you. So thank you for sharing all of your experience and all this wisdom. And I think your students are very lucky. Oh, thank you. And I just want to say this, you you know, talking about full circles, this could all come from you gave me a graduation card that said, do one thing every day that's that scares you. (laughs) I I might be butchering that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt quote. (laughs) You know, I've had a lot of strong mentors in my life and you're definitely, definitely one of them. If you like the episode, I hope that you'll share it and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It helps people to find the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me next time.